Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Two mothers who are also listeners to this program confided that their high school-aged sons with conservative political and social views who challenge their teachers for incorrectly relating history are being called out of the classroom by teachers and one student was called a Nazi. I read two emails from the students. The RCMP struggles to lay charges against the ISIS fighters. That's the quote. Well, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and senior policy advisor, to a federal minister of public safety, has worked out plans and options for the Canadian government to employ as far as legally dealing with these individuals is concerned. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg says don't panic over the UN climate change report. He wrote that in a column in American newspapers. He joined us to talk about it. He is the head of the Consensus Center think tank in Copenhagen. There's word spreading the Canadian government is involved in negotiating ways for former ISIS terrorists and killers to be repatriated into Canada. I spoke with the father of one individual known as Jihadi Jack. He's a dual citizen from the UK. The dad is John Letts. ISIS, what do we need to know and remember about these so-called ISIS fighters and what they perpetrated? Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day is the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Military Unit. They're the scalpel of the Canadian military. Here's what Colonel Day had to say. Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day joins us, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, and JTF-2 is the scalpel of Canada's military. And under Colonel Day's command, uh, you, uh, Colonel Day, thank you for the time. You uh, participated in uh, action against ISIS, did you not? No, ISIS, uh, actually, Roy, pleasure to be back with you. ISIS and that variant of terrorism um, came alive, if you will, after I had retired. So, no, I don't know ISIS in particular, but quite frankly, the terrorism ideology is a lot of the same recipe and a lot of the same sick ideology. So maybe not ISIS or Daesh or Al-Qaeda on the, on the Islamic uh, Maghreb, but they're all kind of the same ideology. It is a, uh, a virulent... Um, twisted view on a great religion and it just is what it is so no i cannot i can tell you right now though i have not personally engaged with isis fighters but you 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 did engage with others who were uh, involved in in terrorism uh, with the jtf2 absolutely how brutal are these organizations it seems almost like a redundant question but when when this individual talks to Stuart bell wants to come back to the country expresses no remorse at all for what he did, we have to be reminded of who we're dealing with. So, who are they? Well, again, largely these are, I would, I would argue, misguided males who are raging against their Western democratic way of life um, because they are marginalized wherever they may be, and um, their minds become poisoned where they, they might believe that there's a better way and that their, their path to salvation is the correct way. And obviously, us in the West uh, disagree with that. And we have this clash of civilizations, this clash of cultures. And uh, it's an extremely complex problem to wrestle with. So how would Joint Task Force 2 be assigned to or come into contact with these organizations? And, And 
I don't want to turn this into a Hollywood movie, but how would you engage them? What would the what would the the process be? Can you can you share that with us? I can because I think what's important for for everyone to appreciate that as Canadians and as a Western democratic nation, we have a rules based society, and those rules based societies both protect us as individuals and protect and safeguard this country and then make us prosper. So whether we are targeting a terrorist cell, a terrorist uh, individual, or some other threat vector, at the end of the day, those JTF-2 operators, those Canadian Special Operations uh, personnel, are going out there and exposing themselves to harm with the full knowledge that they have the backing of the government of Canada. And that, that's critical. The government of Canada and our nation, and arguably all of our allies. So that actually helps fortify the mind of the operator that's risking his life, that what he's doing is morally correct, ethically correct, and legally correct. Because that actually helps us prevent post-traumatic stress, operational stress injuries, et cetera. But to get to the nub of your question, it's a targeting cycle. And you look at the network and you start figuring out, if I start pinging this network, can I get the financier to pop up? Can I get the leader to pop up? Can I get the bomb maker to pop up? And then, literally, it's manhunting, and I can't make it any more black and white than that. It's manhunting those nodes and removing them from the battle space. Ideally, we wish to capture them for their intelligence value, for their prosecution, um, for helping us understand what they're doing. But unfortunately, sometimes you just need to kill them because some of them just need to be killed. So what's your sense, then, of a federal government that seems to be tied in knots, not sure what to do about bringing these individuals or allowing them to return to Canada. What's your, what's your sense, Colonel Day? Well, my, my sense is, as I said off the top, this is a bit of a wicked challenge because we live in a rules-based society and the evidentiary threshold for prosecuting in a Canadian court of law is extremely high, and quite frankly it should be because we don't want to incarcerate um, innocent uh, civilian, innocent Canadians. However, the intelligence thresholds are significantly lower. And so, you know, I've had this conversation in the past. We're in this, this gray space of the 21st century where we have all these sensors, Internet, etc., um, you know, strategic sensors flying high over, human sensors on the ground, and we have great intelligence on what's going on. But translating the intelligence into evidence for prosecution in a Canadian court of law or to revoke citizenship or to deny re-entry is a very difficult uh, process and we have not yet had an informed dialogue as Canadians about what we should be doing because I would argue these people who left our country to go out and cause harm um, are, are not Canadians. They're not demonstrating Canadian values in any way, shape or form. And so now that they want to come back, uh, unfortunately, they have to go back somewhere and whether that is coming back to Canada or back to another location where they're hopefully not going to c- conduct any more operations, they are citizens of Canada. We've granted them that citizenship, and therefore we should be sorting out our own problems. So we should not expect somebody else to, to sort out problems. If a Canadian does something wrong, we need to step up on the world stage, grab a hold of that person, and sort, sort them out. Whatever. Uh, legally, as best we can. Whatever that means, Right. I mean, ultimately, Absolutely. In, some, in some cases, if they are still active combatants, 
if that means we are we're targeting them, we are manhunting them and killing them in the battle space, I personally am absolutely okay with that. However, we just need to look back to the First or Second World War or other armed conflicts. When an enemy combatant lays down his arms, he is no longer defined as a combatant. And therefore, as with, we must maintain the moral high ground here and then take control of that individual and do what him with we wish to do with through a formal due process. Because there are ground troops and leaders, and everybody needs to be dealt with slightly differently. Yeah. The fact that uh, Joint Task Force 2, Special Air Services, the British SAS, the American Navy SEALs, and, and other uh, Western Special Forces units were deployed against these terror groups speaks, I think, volumes to the significance of derailing who they are and what they're doing. Now, um, you're you're still active as far as training uh, people just generally and organizations and and their government agencies on on security and and risk um, avoidance with radical with your with your uh, radical company radical strategic risk specialist. Can you give us about uh, 30 60 seconds of what it is that you actually do on the civilian sector? Well, we try and allow Canadians, Canadian corporations and international partners that kind of share our values to have access to the same world-class tactics, techniques, and procedures that enable them to operate and prosperous in a very chaotic, um, I would say somewhat volatile 21st century. So basically we're taking all of the skills that we learned within the Canadian national security apparatus and with the right caveats around them, making them available to Canadians, um, Canadian corporations, and our friends and allies. Yeah. It, it, that's a simple simple uh, pitch there for you, Roy. Okay. And it's radical.ca. I just want to say one more thing. You talked about the assaulters, the, the, the men uh, who are on the sharp end of the JTF-2 stick, or spear, if you will. We had a situation not long ago where the government was actually going to cut the pay or cut the, uh, the, the, the funds that was going to were made available to these individuals if they were off the front lines or out of their service capability for a period of time, which was brutal because it was going to cost them money or force them back when they weren't ready to go back. Has that changed at all? No, that policy is still moving forward. There's been some adjustments, as there always are when a policy first gets rolled out. But, you know, you are 100% correct, Roy. We have, we have service personnel who've got grievous injuries that are trying to come back a little bit too fast. Because whether we like it or not, one of the other sides of living in a Western democratic nation is we all like to have a few shekels in our pockets. Yeah. So there are some folks that are potentially unnecessarily exposing themselves and or their families to some additional risk because we are penny-pitching on the corners uh, for some of our greatest guardians. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just the nature of what it is sometimes. It's just awful. It's awful because they were harmed in doing the nation's business that nobody else can do as well as they can. Colonel Day, thank you for ser your service to the country, and thank you for the time that you spend with us. Much appreciated. Thank you, Roy, and best wishes to all your, your listeners. Thank you, sir. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2. One of the options, and I'm sorry, we only have about two and two and a half minutes here. What are the options the federal government of Canada has in the likes of this Muhammad Ali and other uh, ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda or other terrorists who want to come home? Um, the first thing they need to do is get off their ass and actually do something. And, and I just want to make that point. I know we have short time. But Sorry about that. Anyway. That's okay. Um, you know, folks, sometimes we overlook it. Um, the importance that the, uh, the media plays 
And congratulations to Global News and Stuart Bell and his team for actually exposing this and going and doing the work, interviewing the guy, which so far the RCMP and CSIS and Global Affairs Canada haven't bothered to do because they're so risk-averse. This is what I warned about in that column that I wrote back in 2017, is because we knew that people had gone over there, we knew that they were going to get apprehended, some would be coming back, and we needed to have a strategy to deal with them because we have legal obligations with respect to this. So very quickly, what they could do with this guy who is now being held, and don't forget by the Kurds who were our closest allies over there, and the Kurds have made it clear that they do not want to keep them they do not want to prosecute them. They don't have the money to pay for everything. So I can tell you I've done some analysis, and there are, we do have options. I think the best thing we could actually do is to go and, oh, and by the way, a, a note to, uh, to Stuart, get your uh, suit ironed, because if this guy comes back here and we go to trial, and I'm the prosecutor, you're witness number one. His direct evidence would be admissible in court to convict this guy of terrorism charges. But I would go and speak with the Kurdish officials and explain to them the best way we can do this is to work with this guy. I would ensure that he is provided with um, uh, duty counsel, special advocates, and explain in very clear terms the nature of the evidence that we have, that he's going to be convicted. If, he pleads, if he's charged and pleads guilty in um, Kurdistan, which our act, the International Transfer Offenders Act, authorizes, uh, he could plead guilty. It could be an agreed upon sentence. And the next day we Scott, could let me agree- Scott, Scott, I'm sorry. Let me call you back in less than an hour. Can we do that? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, I'm sorry about that. All right. Okay, we'll call back uh, Scott Newark and we'll get him to complete the thought after I speak with John Letts. John Letts rejoins us from the UK. Jack Letts' uh, father, an exclusive interview with uh, with our program. John, thank you for taking the time. And Scott, where is your son uh, Jack now? Scott, thanks for uh, taking as the time. As far so, as I know, he's still in a jail cell in Kamishli in northeast Syria under Kurdish control. And what's the reality as far as his transfer to Canada, potential transfer to Canada is concerned? Is the Guardian correct? What do you know about that? I really wish I knew something, Roy, because that article in the Guardian came as a complete surprise to us. We had no idea. We just sent... Someone sent me some a link to it, and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, that's the reality I know. Um, I'm just reading in the papers, as everyone else is. Uh, the reality of the situation, I think, is very difficult. Um, it's funny that in, in that intro piece you played, it's been another nine months, hasn't it? And, and uh, I mean, I have no idea what his health is like. Uh, we get the occasional letter from the Red Cross, heavily censored. Um, but I, I, I know very little. I mean, obviously, I went to Ottawa in May, and we've had discussions. We had fairly regular, well, we had uh, occasional, I, I suppose, communications with Global Affairs Canada. Uh, and then when we went to, I went to Ottawa in May, that was a very interesting meeting. And since then, we've had very little communication. And but we're assuming that the what they promised before was going to continue. It, Everything took time. It's so, um, you know, so many diplomatic issues to be resolved, apparently. But so I, I know nothing. I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen. But they had, as you pointed out in your conversation in February, they told they had told you or been in communication with you that they were intended to bring your son to Canada. And then they suddenly, oh, yes. cut, they suddenly got off all communication? Yeah, 
effectively. I mean, we have loads of information from Global Affairs saying we're going to do everything we can, also the Canadian High Commission to begin with. Then it went over to Global Affairs. It's very, very clear. They said as soon as Jack, certainly as soon as he gets out of Syria um, and gets to a third country, then we have full consular help for him, um, you know, and the British might also then um, work with them to get him to a safe third country and eventually back to the U.K. or to Canada. Um, and... That's the working plan. I've got all sorts of um, information and messages from them saying we're doing everything we can. You know, we, we won't tolerate um, mistreatment of Canadians abroad. Um, he has a right to return, um, <clears throat> all of that. And it was all very positive. But as I say, when we went in Ottawa in May, that was a pretty dispiriting meeting, I suppose to say. And then after that, the, uh, Global Affairs hasn't been communicating very much. But we still thought there was at least some some progress because the Kurds had released statements saying we're very, very happy to hand him over to Canada. And the Canadians clearly said we're happy to take him. Okay, let me talk to you about your son. Uh, your son, Jack, voluntarily traveled to Raqqa, the ISIS caliphate. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. In fact, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I've just been looking at your website. In fact, there's also some stuff on there that I would love to correct at some point when you when we can here tonight if you allow me, about his citizenship. He, he voluntarily went to Syria. That's true. And, and, you know, I don't know much about... But he wasn't... You me. told me last time that he'd been in Raqqa for three years. No, 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 no. no. I, never, I don't think I ever said he was in Raqqa for three years. He was in Raqqa, I think, in total for something like six months, and he was only taken to Raqqa because he was injured in a bomb blast when a coalition bomb, I think it was a Russian bomb or an Assad bomb, fell on a residential area where he was living. See, also, I, I'd love to talk about all of this. I mean, I'd love to answer any question that you or any viewer or anybody would ever want to, to, to talk to me about. But I have to stress that, and that's why I haven't come onto your program earlier when you very kindly asked me to come before, because we're under a contempt of court order to not discuss anything we know about Jack's activity in Syria. Now, that applies in the U.K., but not in Canada. Now, you can talk so, to me, but you cannot talk to British media. That's correct. So, you know, I really am so grateful for the oxygen of being able to actually yeah. talk about it. We, people write all sorts of stuff in the press about Jack, and yet we can't counter it. You know, how, 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 would, you feel, how would your audience feel if, you know, in that position? I, I just want to say it's very, very stressful and frustrating okay, that we now, can never defend it. We, so John, we have, a, yeah. we have about six minutes, so let's get into okay, the issue okay, here. Okay, sorry, I'll, I'll try to... Yeah, you, you told me that your son had, in fact, challenged uh, ISIS on not living up to the rules of the Quran, and that he was tried by an ISIS court for that, correct? Uh, he told us that he, he was taken to court because he was resisting ISIS people who were going on in the streets about this, and he challenged. I think it was probably low-level people okay. on the street. Let me, give you, let me ask you some quick questions. How long was yeah, he in okay. Syria? Uh, from September 14 until he escaped in uh, May of 17. So that's um, about two, two years, 18 months, somewhere around there. And the last six months only, he was in Raqqa, and he went there for hospital treatment for, uh, he obviously had a damaged left hand. Um, and that's why, that's why he was in Iraq before that. It, you know, he was... Yeah. He which was raises the question, which raises the question, why was he there? Why didn't he get out sooner? There's, there's so much to talk about. Well, we'll do oh, a follow-up oh, interview with you. 
Yeah, but, he couldn't get out sooner. Clearly, he'd been trying to get out for months before that. We have all the measures to show that. We tried every way we could. We went to the high court. We did everything we could to try to get him out. It was very clear that he was opposed to, to, to ISIS. And also, and, and he insisted from the beginning he never joined them. I mean, that's a, a, a media invention. So, well, well but we the Brit- British government is considering, according to the Guardian report, maybe you can clarify this, British government is thinking about, is this correct, of uh, rescinding his British citizenship? Is that a possibility? That's never come up as an issue that I've read, that they were considering taking away the citizenship. I don't know of that. No one's ever mentioned that. I think, you know, if he was really severely, if he had, if there was any evidence that he's done any crimes, I can understand these kinds of of decisions. You know, I don't have a a problem with that. But the problem is, where's the evidence? I would like to see some evidence from anyone. The police can't seem to provide it. They can't provide it to our lawyers. Nobody seems to have any evidence that Jack's done anything wrong. And yet, look what's in the, in the papers. Like the Toronto Sun, I just looked at an article online that says, you know, he joined ISIS and he was a terrorist and all this kind of stuff. Where is this information? Because if anybody has information that Jack was a member of ISIS... Why is he being... Why is he be, what, John, the, in, the, in yeah. the Guardian, I'm just reading one sentence here. If Letts is allowed to retain his British citizenship, and charges are brought against him at home, he could also be extradited to the UK. That's if he's moved to, to Canada. So the Guardian is writing about his possibility of losing his British citizenship. Oh, but let's, yes, let's, let's, yes. deal, let's, okay. let's deal in the time we have left with yeah. this question. You, you and your wife are facing uh, significant charges in the UK, yeah. and that's because you tried to send money to your son. To help him escape, yes. So what are the charges? never got there. What are the charges? The charges are that... Um, uh, the police believe that there was a risk that some of the money we tried to send might have been used for terrorism. And the judge in court last week or two weeks ago said these people were told they could send this money to, their, to help get their son out because their son's life was in danger. And it was said in court by the judge. So the judge is signing with you? No, well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the claim is because they delayed the trial again because we said we had to send this money to save his life. And all the messages, any parent would read those messages or anybody else. All the terrorism experts we spoke to all agreed. Clearly, Syria is a dangerous place. He was in hiding with many other people in the resistance work against ISIS, and he had to escape. He wrote begging messages. I need a thousand pounds to pay for a people smuggler. We went to the police. Please help us. The police said, yes, you can send the money. We have this in writing, Roy. You can send the money, and when we sent it, they arrested us. Mm. And the judges, so we, our defense is necessity. We had to do this to save his life, and that's a, a really important part of criminal law in the U.K. And the government has said, no, they shouldn't have the right to necessity because there was no danger in Syria, which was a very interesting statement. And the judge said, uh, I think it's dangerous in Syria, and they have the right of necessity. John, why are the, why are the Kurds holding your son? Well, he's not been charged with anything. There's, again, media reports saying it happened. They haven't charged him. They're, charged, they're holding him because the British have blocked his release. In the first three weeks when he was see, uh, picked up by, uh, uh, by the Kurds, they treated him like a king because they knew he was involved in all the resistance work. All of a sudden, when the British got involved, they, the, the, I've been told, the British, British told the Kurds to keep him in prison, not to release him. It's that simple. And... and, and they don't want him to speak. He's in that gray area of non-combatants who was not a member of ISIS, but he clearly went there. He's guilty of stupidity, naivety, being very religious, all those things where I'd be the first to kick him in the butt for it. But that's but he hasn't been involved in fighting and violence and all this but stuff. But, jo- John, are making up. John, I understand you love your son, but you don't know for sure 
that he never became a member of ISIS. No, and you don't know that he became a member of ISIS. I'm not saying I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you. I know you love your son, but no. what? I mean, no, he, he, it's, okay, an, it's entirely possible, is, given where he was, what was going on, that he would have joined ISIS, and that's what the concern well, of the government is. No, and I understand the concern. I have friends and family in Canada who I don't want to get blown up. I have people know in London who who were injured in the bomb blast. Believe me, the last thing I want is to do that. But if there's an innocent person, I believe is innocent, shouldn't we just put him on trial? Shouldn't we at least listen to him and say whether he is or not? All the messages I have, all the evidence I have that I cannot share with you and I haven't been able to share publicly, we have lots of messages. You can read them for yourself to say, is he guilty or not? Well, all the evidence I have, the police have been unable to provide any of this evidence. And I can tell you that the whole story of, of Jihadi Jack started when a journalist claimed in the Sunday paper in the UK that he called us and joined and, and said he joined ISIS, that he was the first white boy to join ISIS. That was an invention. It's a, it was an invention. But once you get it out there in the media, you know the way fake news works, and, and we all fall for it, and it's just snowballed. And nobody's giving us a chance to counter that. And because we're gagged because of this, uh, for having been arrested for trying to help him get out, the way this has been twisted, we can't speak about it. So as long as Jack stays in custody, the truth is not going to come out. So you want to see him? But, you want to see him in Canada? Clearly. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, 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 and I let me let me just let me just John I, let me let me just wrap it up. And yeah. the Canadian government had been in com- communication with you. You told us that in oh, February, clearly. and and, and then suddenly that stopped. So you have no idea what the status of the situation is currently. No, but we've been told from very good sources that the British government told the Canadians to back off and to not take him, and they're blocking his release. And I think that's kind of sad. I think Canada should be mature enough in its foreign policy to be able to deal with its okay. own people. I think we have the rule of law, and I think that's what I w- and that's what we need him to see. If he's really guilty, I'll be the first to condemn him. I've said it all along. And, you know, it's not about money, Omar Qadar-type payments, I'll sign anything you want. It's not about money. It's about saving my son's life and showing, and I'd like to see some evidence against him. And I haven't seen any. I'm really open to it. Please, I'll condemn him publicly on your program if I see some evidence. He went to Syria. He's guilty of that. But does that mean he should be shot? Does that mean he should rot in a jail cell with testicular cancer and passing kidney stones without pain? You know, he's a Canadian. My wife and I are both Canadians. Both children are both are, are dual Canadians, contrary to what's in that thing on your side. It's not one parent who's Canadian. We've all been Canadian. I'm very, very Canadian. I've been out of the country for 35 years, but that doesn't make me less Canadian. All right. And Jack has spent a lot of time in Canada on holidays, and I can tell you, he's spent more time in Canada on holidays than he has with ISIS. So... You know, but there's a lot of speculation here. I'd love to get down to the facts, but people are making their decisions on this based on gut feelings, reading tabloid newspapers who make stuff up, and I just want the truth to come out. I'm right, not John. trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. All right. I appreciate you talking to us today, and uh, I'll ask you to come back. I hope so, Ryan. I'm sorry to get worked up. I'm no, 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 no. Your father, you love your son. You're facing your own challenges, but people have an expectation that when it comes to terrorism and terrorists, particularly ISIS, that there will be uh, consequences for decisions made. John, thank you for the time. Thank you, Brian. John Letts, father of Jack Letts. We'll come back. And Scott Newark's been listening to this conversation. We'll hear Scott's thoughts and then Scott's ideas and the suggestions to the federal government on what they can do 
as far as bringing former ISIS members or current ISIS members or suspected ISIS members to this country, or at least dealing with them from a legal perspective. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Attorney and uh, Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. So you've listened to John Letts, and we have the usual two and a half minutes. I'm sorry about that. It's just been a long show with lots going on. How do you assess what you heard? And let's go back to also what the Canadian government can do. Yeah, the first thing I think is the uh, a clear contradiction in uh, the perceptions of what the uh, Kurdish government wants to do. Because in um, Stuart Bell's piece with the Sky Muhammad Ali, they said, look, we want to get these people out of the country. We don't want to prosecute them. We want the, uh, their home countries to take them back. That's not the impression that uh, Mr. Letts obviously has. I think the common theme of it, however, is that, and, and, and confining it to Canada, is that the Canadian government is not stepping up and taking proactive measures. The one that I would recommend the most is we speak to the Kurds, explain the legal procedures. It's what we used, and your show was a big part in making it possible in getting Omar Carter back here when I explained the International Transfer Offenders Act to his lawyer. If he was charged in uh, Kurdistan, and the act specifically would permit that, uh, and convicted and sentenced, the next day we could have him, we could sign the agreement under the International Transfer Offenders Act, transfer him back to Canada as a Canadian citizen, which he has a right to do. They don't want him in their country, which is understandable, but he goes to jail, okay, and he's subject to the Canadian legal system, which is that we can then make the assessments about whether or not, if he is eligible for release, and we have all sorts of other legal tools. If we don't do that, we could actually uh, actually do the investigation that Stewart and his team did, get the necessary information, seek to extradite him under our Extradition Act, or we could just agree to return him and conduct the investigation here. The point is we have lots of options. What we don't have is any leadership from the federal yeah. government or the different agencies that are involved to actually get something done. Okay, Scott, thank you very much. Column that ran in USA Today and in other newspapers across the United States and uh, elsewhere by Dr. Bjorn Lomborg over the past several days was Don't Panic over UN Climate Change Report. And uh, Dr. Lomborg uh, joins us from the UK. He's the head of the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank and uh, was the director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute and named by the New York Times to the world's 100 most influential people. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you with us. Can you put him on for me, please? Somebody? Yeah, thank you. Hey, Roy, it's good to be back. Good to have you with us. Um, among your books, Prioritizing the World, Cost-Benefit to Identify the Smartest Targets for the Next 15 Years. That was published in 2014. Before I ask you about the column and where, we, where we're going, how have we done since 2014 as far as prioritizing the targets are concerned, given the fact that we had that massive uh, climate conference in Paris in 2015. Yeah, well, we've not done very well. Actually, the UN did much more than just the Paris Agreement. They, uh, they basically decided uh, to set the goals for the next 15 years for the world and say, let's do everything. And, and, of course, that's politically very, very convenient. And I, I guess we'll come back to some of that conversation on, around the climate. It's very convenient to just pretend that you're going to do everything uh, and you'll help everyone everywhere in all their problems 
with any kind of support you could possibly do. But of course, what it actually means is you're not going to do any of it because there's no way you have enough money to do all of this. So the reality is, and that's why I think we need to have this uncomfortable conversation of saying, look, if you can't do everything, what are the most important things to do first? So you don't waste money on things that sound good, but not on the things that will actually do good. So as you point out in the column in USA Today, the New York Post and other publications, don't panic over the UN climate change report, but that's exactly what governments want us to do. The international economy should be turned on its head no matter the costs. And it's not the first panic report. In 2006, Al Gore warned us we had 10 years left before the world was irrevocably uh, became a catastrophe. Where are they most wrong in their let's do everything, let's change everything, let's change it now, no matter the cost? Uh, that's actually a hard question to start answering because they're, we're wrong in a lot of different ways. Uh, two of the ways, I think, is one, that there is a sense in which if you scream loud enough, then you'll actually convince people you need to do something. Well, what's happening is in reality, when you scream this loudly and say everything you see is due to global warming and everything is going to be bad, you take away credibility from the very real problem of global warming and make everyone say, this is just overhyped. I'm not even going to bother with it. The second part is if we're going to fix global warming, and I think we should be spending money and resources in actually tackling global warming, you should do so smartly. But right now, we spend lots and lots of resources that will do virtually no good. And what the UN uh, helped and, and, and the whole sort of uh, 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 um, attention machine around the UN report is telling us is basically, could you please stop civilization in the next 10 years or so? Uh, and, of course, people are going to say, no, that, I, I don't actually want that because I do like accessible energy. I do like abundant energy. I know that that's what keeps my kids warm or keep them cool. It's what feeds us. It's what makes it possible to live a world uh, of, of joy in, in a modern civilization. Well, what you just pointed out is the technological, the result of technological advancements that have taken place over a period of decades and maybe a century, just the advancements that have brought us from a society where we depended on candles to the point where we flick a switch and we have light and we have health care that couldn't have been dreamt of a century ago. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying uh, also that climate change will have a diminishing impact on peoples of the world because of technological and other global advancements in science and health in years and decades to come. Exactly. Look, if we focus on getting people richer, they will also be more resilient. Remember, hurricanes that hit the U.S., they look terrible and they actually devastate and they kill tens of people, possibly even hundreds sometimes. And in one instance, in Katrina, thousands. But remember, when hurricanes hit, for instance, the same kind of hurricanes hit poor uh, Central American countries. They kill literally hundreds or thousands of people. They destroy perhaps a third of the economy. They have much greater impact because poor people have much less ability to be robust, to build up defenses, and to ride out the problems that nature has always thrown out our way. So really, one of the best ways you can help is to make sure that people get rich and resilient. Now, that does not mean 
we can't also be focusing on, well, what are some of the things that we can do about global warming? We should carefully look at what are the things that we cost effectively can do. That is the issues that are cheap, but that will deliver lots of climate benefits. Unfortunately, right now, we seem to be intent on saying, let's make a lot of expensive policies that will have almost no climate benefits. And that's a bad deal. That eventually ends up making us worse off, or at least very little better off. You wrote in the column, and you've said it before, you said it after the 2015 Paris Accord uh, on this program, if all the promises of the Paris Climate Treaty are kept, the resulting global hit to growth will reach $1 trillion to $2 trillion a year by 2030. Well, what, what, what amount of good could be done? First of all, what's that going to accomplish under the, under the Paris Accord? And what could, in fact, be accomplished if that money were judiciously spent? That's, a, that's an amazing, amazing question. I'm, I'm so astounded that we don't have that conversation more often. So the $1 to $2 trillion that we're going to be spending on the Paris Climate Agreement, if everybody actually do what they promise, will achieve almost no climate good. We know from the UN's own estimates, it will reduce emissions about 1% of what is needed to just get to the two degree target that everybody talks about. So it'll do virtually nothing. It'll reduce temperatures by the end of the century by perhaps 0.05 degrees uh, by the end of the century. So literally, we will not be able to measure the impact 100 years from now from spending more than a trillion dollars, say from 2030. Compare that to some of the things that we could do, uh, and and literally, I don't have time enough on this program to add up all the things that we could do because most things that we need to do to help the world are orders of magnitude cheaper. So, just to give you one example, we could probably eradicate the world's biggest infectious disease killer, which kills 1.4 million people every year. That's on tuberculosis for about eight billion dollars a year. So that's about one. That's a little less than 1% of $1 trillion a year. So we could just do that. We could feed everyone. We could pull everyone out of poverty. We could make sure that pretty much all the main challenges that the world is facing were fixed, and for much, much less. And, of course, we've got to, you've got to ask yourself, why is it we're so obsessed with spending a trillion dollars on doing very little good when there's so many other ways that we could spend less money and do so much more good? Dr. Lomborg, on the carbon tax, the mantra continues. And as I said, we're going to be fighting a federal election in the, in the year to come, and the carbon tax will figure centrally in, in all of the debates. Is the carbon tax, is a carbon, carbon tax truly destructive to economies? And you told us last time that a global carbon tax would drive 78 million people into hunger, and I read something else that you had written and the point was that the carbon tax was, if I understand this correctly, was suggested or called for to help 24 million people. So if you have a global carbon tax that helps 24 million people but drives 78 other million other people into hunger, what kind of policy is that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think uh, we need to, like many, many other things, realize that this depends on how much you do it. So any economist would argue that if you have a problem like global warming, 
a carbon tax that reflects the damage that global warming does would actually be a socially efficient way of solving the problem. But there's a number of buts before you actually start doing that. One is, as you mentioned, uh, that you need to have the correct carbon tax. And what we were talking about with the uh, 78 million people who are going to starve extra because of very high uh, uh, carbon taxes was the idea if you really want to do something about climate change, want to dramatically reduce it, as the UN Climate Panel Report also talked about uh, this week, then you have to have very, very high carbon taxes. And that is going to be hugely detrimental. The other thing you also need to remember is if you're going to have a carbon tax, you've got to cut all other special services, like, for instance, when you have subsidies for solar and wind and you have you know, a deduction for your electric car and you have uh, other benefits, like you can have free parking or free recharging or uh, go in the carpool lane with your electric car. You need to get rid of all of that. But if you do that, a small or limited carbon tax can actually be the right approach. Unfortunately, we rarely see that in the real world. What happens is you both get a carbon tax and you still have all the subsidies and all the inefficiencies. And in that case, you actually end up being worse off than if you didn't do any of it. What's your assessment of why the IPCC and uh, its supporters, including international governments, continue to stress that it's so important to follow through on, let's go back to this whole issue of a trillion to two trillion dollars to be uh, deducted from the global economy annually by 2030. Why are they so insistent on this? Well, there's a number of reasons. First of all, uh, the UN Climate Panel, the IPC, was actually not put into force to help us look at the economic arguments. They're simply telling you, and I think they honestly do this, in saying, look, there's a problem with global warming. You've got to fix it. And if you want to fix it, you've got to spend all this money, but we're not actually looking at it. So it, it's, not, it's not entirely their fault. But what, of course, everybody else takes away from it is to say, well, we got to, you know, this is terrible. We've got to do something about it, and we've got to put huge carbon taxes, and we need to make huge subsidies for solar and wind. And that is where you go wrong. Of course, there are lots of special interests that actually gain resources from this. The whole you know, big green uh, makes lots of money from having these sorts of arguments. So very clearly, there's a lot of people who want to argue for supporting their industry. I understand if I was a head of a, 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 the world's biggest wind turbine manufacturer, I would want more subsidies for my product. Then the last bit, you also asked about governments. I think actually many, many governments are saying we need to do something, but mostly we need to do something much, much later, you know, when I've stopped being a politician and somebody else has to take that responsibility. So in some ways, governments are really double-speaking. They're both saying we need to do a lot of stuff on, on climate. They end up wasting quite a bit of resources. But also notice most governments are not actually taking climate change very seriously. In some way, that's actually pretty good because if they did, it would cost us a lot more. But what I, of course, would love was that we took it seriously in a smart way rather than in the pretty stupid way we do right now. I was just reading some stories about the Green Climate Fund and how much trouble it is in, lost its executive director, and after Donald Trump pulled the U.S. funding, the rest of the world's 
developed countries didn't seem all that interested in picking up the slack. And so uh, that fund is in trouble. And um, it, yep. it just seems to be it seems to be a morass that's getting deeper and deeper. And the more I read about and hear about your solutions, the more sensible they seem, and the less likely I think they're going to be. It is that they're going to be adopted at the international level. But please, please keep talking about it. And please keep reminding us, Doctor Lomborg. And and I'll I'll keep doing that. Just to <laughs> give you one one sense. It actually seems like Bill Gates and many others are pushing for this. So we are seeing some benefits, for instance, on increasing research and development into green energy, which is going to be one of the solutions. So there is some push for this. Yes, there's a lot of money that's being spent badly on the climate front, and I would love to help make that more effective. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg. Now let me read you. The emails that I received from the Canadian high school students. And again, it was just happenstance that I happened to be in contact with their mothers separately. Here's the first one. And I'm not going to identify them, and I will not indicate where they've gone to school, because I don't want to make their lives any more difficult than, than there already are. So here's the first one. I'm 16, but this happened just last year. I've been very interested in politics since my mom was upset about the NDP. I had to find out why. I've done lots of research about the political parties on both a provincial and federal level. I find politics one of the most important things the kids my age should be involved in, as we will be allowed to vote soon. My daddy passed away in February of this year. My mom told me that I should try to go back to school in March. I have to get credits in order to graduate and apply for universities that I want to get into. I decided that for my dad, I should go and work toward graduating high school. My first day back, I began to feel a little better, normal, if you would say. I went in one class, and we began talking about Hitler. The teacher said that Hitler was only killing gay people, which I know is wrong, along with some of the other kids, but they didn't say anything. I had to. I began to correct my teacher, and she began to fight my facts. When she'd had enough of me, she called me a Nazi and stopped pushing my thoughts on her and then told me to leave her class. I told her she should teach history, not whatever she was doing. I left the school entirely at that point. I couldn't face anyone. I just went home and called my mom. I didn't want to go back to school. I felt as if I'd just wasted my time. I couldn't go back to school. My mom had told me that many times about her granddad fighting Nazis and how her dad was born in the war. I didn't go back to school last year. I'll have to find a way to make up the credits that I missed this year so I can go into university. Thanks, Roy. My mom has been talking with lots of other parents who have these same things happen to their kids as well. So here's the, uh, here's the second email. My name is, and I go to, blank, high school, and I'm in grade 11. In grade 9, I had a teacher who wouldn't allow me to go to her class because I didn't agree with her NDP is great for Alberta stuff, she would say all the time. I would ask her why, a lot, why she thought that the carbon tax, that people would support it, and she always said that Canada is going to be a wasteland without it. She was very anti-oil, and as my dad was working for a big oil place, I didn't like that. She was teaching against it. 
I was removed from the class for speaking out against her twice a week. My mom decided to move me to the public system after that, so now I go to blank school. Last year, I was given credit for social, but was only there for half the class. My teacher would teach us things about Trump, but only how bad he was. She never said anything about the good things he's done. When she spoke about the Me Too movement, I asked about Bill Clinton and was ignored. This year again, when a different teacher was teaching me and I talked about sexual or talked about sexual predators in high positions, Trump and Kavanaugh, I asked why Bill Clinton wasn't considered a predator as well, and the teacher ignored me for the rest of the class. I don't think I'm asking unreasonable questions. I'm asking for both sides. I'm a white boy, and I'm scared that my future, as one, is in jeopardy for work. Thank you very much for this. There are lots of kids in my class who have been going through this. Last week, a teacher said it was no wonder her mom beat her to her girl in class. I don't think she's going to come back to school. I know one of my friends had said a kid never came back to class last year because of the way he was treated. I don't know him, though. So there's the second email from teenagers. In our schools in Canada, these kids don't know each other. I know that from their, from their mothers. They don't know each other. These arrive separately. So this is extremely disturbing to me. I, I, I watch young people shouting and screaming about things they don't know very much about. And that's okay, because when I was their age, I didn't know much about it either. But I didn't go out in the street and shout and scream about it. But it is what it is. But when the classroom, when the, when the classroom instruction is wrong and the student knows it's incorrect, and the student challenges the teacher. And the teacher calls the student a Nazi and throws the student out of the class. And the school administration does nothing about it, by the way. This is a serious issue, a serious problem. So your thoughts, please. This is, this is just two young Canadians, two kids, two young men. Miss Smith in Manitoba is a teacher. I, I know teachers didn't have first names. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> thank oh, you for your well, call. Thank you for thank you for taking my call. I've uh, taught for over twenty years, and that's absolutely disgusting. There's no room for any of that in our education system. And but I must say that for every every teacher that behaves like that, there's thousands more that, of course, are building into our students' lives. But I would like to give a little tip to parents on how to move and shake and get results when something appalling like that happens, um, if I may. Sure. Um, well, when things are put into writing, uh, you will see the proverbial, you know what, hit the fan. And I'm a mother as well, and I've done this on behalf of my own kids and, and also encouraged uh, my students uh, and their parents. They have to put things in writing because as soon as something's in writing, um, administrators, school trust, trustees hate that. Teachers um, could be in trouble. They need to put things in writing, and they need to substantiate the date, the time this happened, and what was stated. And it's much better if parents would get together, especially if there's a couple of students in the same classroom that have heard this. And believe me, the school trustees and the administration will be all over that. You know, uh one of the parents told me 
that she'd been in touch with the principal. The principal did nothing. The trustee was disinterested. So I understand what you're saying, but if you're, if you, how is it possible that this happens in a classroom? Because it's not just a one-time occurrence. Mm-hmm. So it happens, and it's probably happened many times. And the teacher feels empowered and able to get away with it. No, and, and you know you talk you talk about it. You know I know that the uh, I, I don't shouldn't say I know. I suspect the farm great majority of teachers are responsible in the classroom. I don't know, but I would suggest. However, a cancer starts with one cell. Right. Yes, I agree, hundred um, percent. When I was a classroom teacher, I welcomed alternative opinions, and especially to you know grade 11 and 12 students, I'd say, I hope there's somebody in this class that's going to have a What did you opinion. do? What did you do? And I'll take another call in a second. What did you do when you were, if you were challenged by right. a student? If you said something in the classroom that a student felt or believed or had researched and right. felt that it was, what you said was incorrect and challenged right. you on it, how did you react? I welcome that. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Okay. Now, 100%. if you knew of yeah. a teacher who did not if you knew that in your school environment of a teacher who reacted as these teachers did right. and you saw that teacher in the staff room, do you bring it up? Absolutely, because the way the chain of command goes or the, the teacher's code of ethics, number one is to protect and to protect the students, but a teacher's code of ethics says if they have something against a colleague, they need to go directly to that colleague first. And if they don't get it resolved with that colleague, then they take the colleague to the administration. But I guess in a case where um, there's probably systemic uh, abuse or abuse of power in a school system like that, you absolutely need to write it down. And the no, more I hear parents you. I hear you. this, the better. Yeah. And they need to go, if they need to go as far as the um, Minister of, of Education, but in that jurisdiction, yep. they should absolutely go to the superintendent. Okay. All right. And you just have you just have to go up the chain of command. Okay, Miss Miss Smith, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Miss Smith, teachers don't have first names. My teachers never have first names. It was Mister or Miss actually or Misses. Can you imagine actually calling a teacher Miss or Misses? I'm surprised we survived such trauma. Susan is in Calgary. Susan, thank you for the call. Go ahead, please. Hi, Susan. <laughs> Hi, Roy. I love your show. Thank you. Um, uh, I think this is uh, something that's been part of the teaching profession for a long time. Uh, when I grew up in Montreal, I was 15 in high school, and my history teacher called Churchill a warmonger. My mother was a nurse in the Canadian Army. My father was in the RCAF and was injured. They both served overseas. So I certainly had grown up in a home where Churchill was a big part of stopping Hitler. So I challenged my teacher on that, and I was kicked out of the class for arguing for the rest of the year. Now, let's well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Susan, stop. You were kicked out of the class for the rest of the year? The rest of the year. And luckily, in Quebec at that time, I'm 64, at Quebec at that time, 100% of your mark was your departmental final, and it's history, so read the book and study. So, But when I was walking into the departmental final, my history teacher was at the door and said, I don't know why you're bothering to write you this exam. You haven't been to class all year. <laughs> so anyhow, I got the last word because I got 86 in history that year. But Good for you. I, I, and it's really great to hear from the teachers because I know he was not the majority. But what concerns me more is the kind of thinking that goes on with teachers as a group 
in the areas of environmental science and politics, I think, you know, seeing the Ontario... Okay, let me, let, me just, let me just stay with what's going on here with, with this and, okay. and with, the, with this issue. Okay. Can you tell, what, do you mind telling me what school you went to in, uh, in Montreal? You know what? I'd, I'd honestly rather not say. It's a really little school. Okay, and fair it enough. It was a public school. Because I, I, I went to Westmount High, and uh, we, we generally had good teachers there, but we had a couple of people who were, shall we say, a little unhinged. <laughs> and 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 they and they got regularly challenged by me, and and by by some others. But anyhow, it's it's really disturbing. You know, I'll never forget. We would. Uh, I, I started a broadcast. Unfortunately, CHML in Hamilton still continues it. I started the tradition of uh, of Remembrance Day broadcasts at the Cenotaph, where the nine a.m. to noon program was carried live, and including the eleven o'clock ceremony. And uh, and I never forget. We went. To, we would go to phone calls after the ceremony, and we had a call from a student at McMaster University, which is just down the road. And the student told us that w- when 11 o'clock arrived on, uh, on Remembrance Day, the, the, the professor just kept on talking. And uh, after a minute or so of this, one of the students spoke up and said, it's 11 a.m. on Remembrance Day. We're supposed to have two minutes of silence. And the professor said to the student, do that on your own time later. We haven't got time for it. Wow. And to the eternal credit of those students, they stopped the lecture, they stopped participating, and they apparently stood up for two minutes of silence. Now, that would have been at least 10 years ago, maybe 12, 15 years ago. I don't know if students today would do it. I don't know how many of them are being indoctrinated by, uh, by, by, by some teachers, but by, by many teachers. I don't know what the reality is across the country, but I know these two emails are not two situations involving only two students in the, in this country of ours. I know it's happening elsewhere. It has to be. Susan, thank you for the call. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 